Hi, everybody. My name is Chad Kelly, and thanks for tuning into the UMA Financial Podcast. Today, I'll be speaking with Wendy Clark about student loan debt. Wendy is a financial aid administrator at the University of Utah School of Medicine. Wendy is an expert on student loans, and I think you'll find our conversation helpful. Hope you enjoy. Well, Wendy, thank you for joining us on our podcast. Uh, we're excited about the topic. Um, many of our clients have felt some level of anxiety um, about student loans. Um, some of it, it's in the rearview mirror. Some of it are currently thinking about it right now, and it might even be causing lack of sleep, right? And so we're excited to have you on. Um, why, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about you. You, you deal with student loans on a daily basis. Uh, tell us w- what you do. Well, it's fun being here with you today, and I'm very excited to go over this information. Uh, I lost a little sleep last night worrying about coming in, so I totally understand that. I have been in the student loan industry since 1993, and over the 27, almost 27 years of working in student loans, I've seen the interest rates go anywhere from over 9% down to 3.2% and everywhere in between. So I do understand uh, the frustration and the anxiety that that students and family members feel when they talk about student loans. So you you deal with it on a daily basis. Tell us about your current role role now at the University of Utah and what you do. Wonderful. I started with all of the students in the financial aid office working with first-year students all the way up to law and medical students. And over the last 10 years, I've worked only with our medical students at the University of Utah. I advise our students on debt management. I invite them in before they start medical school and we do an entrance counseling session one-on-one with each student and many students bring in family members to help with the process. And then all the way to the fourth year of medical school, we sit down in that last semester and we do exit counseling talking about how all of the loans will be repaid and how they will be just fine with their financial situation. And it's so fun when the students uh, finish that session and they look at you and you can see that a, a lot of pressure has been relieved with the, with the understanding that they know that they can pay those student loans back and that they'll be just fine. I'm sure that comes as a huge relief for so many people. You know, building a good financial plan involves saving for retirement, but equally as important is managing your debt. And so this is an important subject. Um, but as, as we jump into it, there's kind of, I guess, you could think of two broad ways that you can pay for medical school or debt, private loans, federal loans. Um, and I, if you could maybe just touch a little bit on, you deal primarily with federal loans, uh, and where are federal loans right now? Um, you said you've seen the spectrum of you know, low interest rates to high interest rates. What, what are people seeing? So right now, our, the interest rate on the student loans for our students is 6.08%. Okay. Undergraduate loans are, are lower in interest than graduate loans. And undergraduate students can actually take out subsidized loans. And right now, uh, through the federal government, the only loans available to, un, to graduate students are unsubsidized loans. Okay. The difference between a private loan and a federal loan Uh, In my opinion, the private industry does have student loans and they do offer student loans to um, anyone who qualifies. There's just a little bit more security, I think, when you're working with federal loans because of the loan repayment options that are available out there. I advise all my students to look at both. 
I have had students who have paid for all of their medical school using private loans because they had such a high credit score and could qualify for such low interest loans. Oh, they actually sense. qualified for loans that were lower rate, a uh, lower interest rate than the federal government was op was offering. Okay. Um, now, even when you when you look at these loans, um, you see different terms like subsidized versus unsubs unsubsidized, um, grad plus, parent plus. Maybe explain a little bit some of the differences between these loan structures. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the difference between unsubsidized loans and subsidized loans basically is where you are in school. So as an undergraduate, you're eligible to borrow subsidized loans, meaning the federal government pays the interest while you're going to school, okay. and for six months after, and unsubsidized loans, meaning that the loan starts to accrue interest as soon as it goes into your tuition account. So just as soon okay. as that loan disperses, your the interest is accruing on it. And then you have to pay it, not the government. Correct. You okay. pay all of the interest. It just keeps adding right into the loan. Okay. A graduate plus loan and a parent plus loan are loans that are there to assist above and beyond what the federal government will allow a student to borrow as an undergraduate or graduate in the direct loan program. Okay. Parent PLUS loans are taken out by the parent, and they are the parent's responsibility to pay that loan back. Uh, graduate PLUS loans are loans that my students, my medical students, take out to bridge the difference between the $40,500 that they can borrow in the direct loan and their cost of attendance. Oh, okay, great, thank you. I want to talk a little bit about repayment methods. You, if you have student loans, you can elect different methods to pay it back, right? Uh, the first one we'll talk a little bit about uh, is forbearance, uh, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but I guess one thing before we jump into that, let's talk a little bit about uh, oftentimes, the, depending on, well, regardless of what you pick, you have a grace period before you begin a repayment method. Let's talk about uh, grace periods. Often, most people see it start in June when they graduate and, and go till December. Is that always the case? So for federal loans, the direct unsubsidized loans uh, or subsidized loans, they do have a six-month grace period, meaning if you borrowed the loan and then you graduated in May, your loans would go into repayment, the grace period would end the end of November, and your first payment would be due right around Christmas. Okay. Merry, Christmas. Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Okay. Um, but as I mentioned, forbearance is one option. Maybe talk about some of the the situations or the pros or cons of forbearance you know and typically do you find most people do that or few very few people do that forbearance is an is a program that was established for for those students who really struggle paying their loans back right out of school so you can apply for forbearance as a medical student you're guaranteed forbearance while you're in residency you do have to qualify for forbearance okay. um, for other students and at that time you make no payments on your student loans, but the interest continues to incur. That, that, that's the big catch, is interest is still growing. And so, you know, you're not making any payments, but the balance is, is growing rapidly sometimes, it feels like. Correct. And with the different loan repayment options that are out there, it really doesn't make a lot of sense to jump right into forbearance, if at all possible. Going into one of the income-driven repayment plans is a better option. Yeah, yeah. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about what that exact exact thing, the income-driven repayment options. Another option is the standard repayment. And so this means that you take your student loan debt and you'd pay it back over a fixed time period, maybe 10 years. Now, for most people, most residents who are making, uh, we'll say, 60000 range, the standard repayment would be 
too much, right? Correct. If you've borrowed um, anywhere close to the national average, which is over $200,000, there's no way that you could make a standard repayment on a resident income as, a, as an individual. Now, some people might say they have a, a spouse who earns income and they could handle the payment. That spouse would have to make quite a bit of money because the payment would, would be significant, right, for a balance over 200000 Correct. Some people might have family money or other options, I guess. But this is one of the, probably one of the less common options, I would guess, for most medical students because it's expensive. But probably the most popular is one of the income-driven repayment methods. And so we want to talk a little bit about your different options. The, the, the big ones you hear about, pay as you earn and revise pay as you earn. Those seem to be the most popular with revise pay as you earn probably is the most popular. Is that correct? Is that what you see? It is now. When they very first established the income-driven repayment plans, the very first one that was offered was income-based income repayment, yes. where you use 15% of your discretionary income. And a discretionary income isn't 15% of your income. The discretionary part starts by using 150% of the poverty level in the state that you live, and then it's 15% of that level. Uh, yeah. So there is more calculating in, um, done through the federal government in determining what your payment would be. When income-based repayment was established, they allowed for a 25-year repayment period, and at the end of 25 years, there would be forgiveness on the loan if there was anything left over. Okay. The federal government came out, and there were enough people struggling with their student loans that they established the pay-as-you-earn program. Okay. And yeah. through pay-as-you-earn, you, um, you had to have borrowed a loan. You had to have had no student loans before October 1st, 2007, but you had to have borrowed a loan by October 1st, 2011. So there were some stipulations that were established in that loan repayment program, one being that you had to show financial hardship that could keep you from being eligible to participate in that plan. There were enough people who were having difficulty repaying their loans that the federal government established the revised pay-as-you-earn program. Yeah. Through pay-as-you-earn and revised pay-as-you-earn, 10% of your discretionary income is what your payment is based on. So less than the IBR, income-based repayment, which was 15%. Correct. And uh, with the pay-as-you-earn, your forgiveness was available at 20 years. Yeah. With revised pay-as-you-earn, you don't have to show financial hardship, but you do have to pay the loan for an additional five years. So the repayment kicks in, or the forgiveness kicks in at 25 years. 25 years. So th this is this is probably one of the most popular questions we get is, should I do pay as you earn or revise pay as you earn? And, and it can be circumstantial, I guess, right? Factors such as, do you file your taxes jointly or separately can have an effect on payments. Uh, for example, pay as you earn, uh, you can file your taxes separately and your repayment is only calculated off of your income, not your spouse's, correct? Correct. Whereas with a revised pay as you earn, regardless of if you file separately or jointly, your spouse's income is calculated into the repayment. Correct. The income from the household is, is used to, to establish the repayment. Other factors like do you have dependents, kids? This affects the, the price or the, this affects the repayment. Um, so are there any good tools or how do you typically help someone arrive at the decision of do I do revised pay as you earn or pay as you earn or re repayment method? When I advise students, one of the tools that we use is the MedLoan calculator through the AAMC. Okay. Again, uh, it's actually the MedLoan organizer and calculator uh, available on 
aamc.org. Their calculator is a great tool for my students because my medical students, when they graduate, they start working and make an income of about $60,000 a year while in residency, and then their income changes significantly once they finish residency and fellowship. If you were to go to the to the calculator that's through uh, fedloans.org, you're not going to have that ability to show a smaller income at first with a larger income to follow. They assume a linear income. Correct. With probably regular pay increases throughout the repayment of the loan, whereas it, it, most physicians experience a balloon in salary. Exactly. After residency. Exactly. As an attending, they make a lot more than they do as a resident. Yes, yes. Uh, with the MedLoan calculator, it actually will calculate uh, their information and show them what their payment would be in income-based repayment, revised pay-as-you-earn, pay-as-you-earn, standard repayment, even contingent repayment, and the graduated repayment. All of these different repayment options are available to students. Puts them and all side by side and so you can analyze it pretty easy. Correct. It shows how many years they'll pay, how much they'll pay, when the forgiveness would kick in. and. So it's a great tool for my students to actually sit down side by side with me and go over that information and know before they ever even decide what they want to do, where, where we're going. Oh, that's great. So once again, aamc.org, the loan calculators, they're available for people to log into and take a look at. You can actually Google it, MedLoan Cal- Med Organizer and Calculator, and it'll take you right to their website. Perfect. Great. Uh, one of the other popular questions we get is public service loan forgiveness. So I want to talk a little bit about what an individual needs to do to qualify for the public service loan forgiveness program. Uh, th- there's a lot of a lot of opinions out there on this, a lot of frustration because people are reading articles that states a lot of people have applied for it and a lot of people have been denied. And so people begin to question, you know, is this program going to be around when my loans are forgiven? What am I doing everything right now that I need to to qualify for the loan forgiveness? So we want to talk a little bit about uh, what people should be doing ongoing. I, I guess the first first and big one is you need to be working for a 501c3 entity. And what, what does that mean exactly? It means you have to work for a not-for-profit organization. Okay. Now, just to use an example, the University of Utah School of Medicine, not School of Medicine, the University of Utah as a whole, uh, our uni- university health center, um, even IHC, the hospital out in Murray, any of the hospitals in the valley, almost all of those hospitals are going to be not-for-profit hospitals. Okay. But the problem is most of the clinics in the private hospitals, or IHC, um, the others in the valley, the doctors work for a group. And they don't work for the hospital. Yes. So if they're contracted through the hospital, they're not working as a not-for-profit. They are working for profit. Okay. At the university hospital, we do have quite a few departments where they work for the hospital itself. So they would qualify for the public service loan forgiveness as a not, not-for-profit. Myself, if I were applying for public service loan forgiveness as a University of Utah employee, I would qualify after 10 years of repayment. Yes. So it, it totally depends on who is actually writing your paycheck, not just who you assume you're working for. That's a very good point. One other is uh, you need to have 120 payments, so 10 years worth of repayments. Full on time payments. Full on time payments. 
And, and one thing I want to clarify is you need to be on one of the income-driven repayment methods. Correct. And so 120 payments, and this is one of the big hangups on people who have been denied forgiveness, if you read about in the news, is people are applying and they haven't made 120 payments yet. So you have to make full on-time payments. I actually had a student who graduated just this past year contact me and tell me that they were denied. Okay. And I wasn't surprised because they haven't made 120 payments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can't apply for this program until you have. There are two forms that have to be completed, and they're both available out on online. And so if you, by chance, click on the application for the program, yes. instead of the employment certification form, and you submit the form, you're going to be denied unless yeah. you have 120 payments. That was another popular reason why people were rejected is they miss, they, they filled out forms incorrectly or the wrong forms. Correct. And so you need to make sure you're doing the correct paperwork. But the, the, sorry to interrupt, no, Chad, but good. the employment certification form is extremely important. And this is how the, the federal government can verify that you are working for a not-for-profit entity. So if you remember each year to have your employer fill out this form and submit it, you're already st a step ahead of the game. In reality, you only need one of those employment certification forms per employer. But it's, it's just better to be in the habit of completing it each year than you know you're on track and you have the ability to contact your servicer and say, I've submitted this employment certification form. Is there anything else I need to do to qualify for all of my loans to be forgiven? I think that's a good, a very good point, some good advice. It, be in the practice of annually checking, right? Absolutely. The mistake we find is some people say, well, I checked years ago and I assumed it was all going correctly until I called five years later and lo and behold, it's not. So I think annually setting the, set, a, set a reminder in your calendar to reach out and speak to someone, have them email you and say in the email, everything looks like it's good to go. So you have a kind of a paper trail, right? Correct. It's your responsibility and your obligation to document that you've made those 120 payments. By completing this employment certification form, you're helping your servicer understand that you are interested in working towards public service loan forgiveness, and they will assist you in tracking your 120 payments. But it is totally and completely the responsibility of the borrower to guarantee that those payments are full and on time. One way to help ensure that is to sign up for direct debit through the federal government, to ha uh, through each of your servicers. Each servicer has the ability to have you sign up online so that that payment for your student loan comes out of your checking account each month at the, the exact time, guaranteeing a full on-time payment. Yeah, this creates a paper trail. It's easy to go back and double check. I think that's great advice. Uh, one of the other criteria is you need to be full-time or at least 30 hours per week. We run into some people who are working less than 30 hours per week and you know it might be in their best interest to pick up an extra shift or, or bump up over the threshold so their payments are qualifying. Correct. And so that was another hurdle, a common reason why uh, people's applications were being rejected. Uh, another popular question that we get, a lot of people ask, I've heard that the balance forgiven, if I'm awarded loan forgiveness, is taxable. It, I want to talk a little bit about the situations where it is taxable versus where it's not. Did, would you 
be okay taking that from there? Oh, absolutely. So we talked a little bit earlier about paying your loans for 20 or 25 years through this just the, the federal loan forgiveness that's available to on all income-driven repayment plans. So for pay-as-you-earn, you pay your loan for 20 years. Yeah. At the end of 20 years, anything that's left over would be forgiven. Yeah. But that would be taxable forgiveness. So yeah. you would pay taxes on the amount that is forgiven. Uh, the same with the revised pay as you earn at the end of 25 years or the income-based repayment at the end of 25 years. Anything that's remaining at the end of your repayment that is forgiven by the federal government would be taxable income. And if you're a physician, you're looking at the fact that that taxable income is going to be at a higher tax rate than yeah. someone who makes $50,000 a year. Yeah, if you're earning $400,000 a year, then you have 100000 forgiven. There's a good chance you, you could be in the 30% range tax bracket, you know, and so, or, or higher. Or it's, higher. Or higher, and so that's one thing to keep in mind. Now, what, what's a situation where the forgiven balance is not taxable? Well, for, for public service loan forgiveness, and again, we have to stress, this is not a guarantee. Yeah. This program is uh, was established through the federal government, and it is something that is ongoing, but could go away at any time. There is just no, no way to say, I'm doing public service and I've done my paperwork and I, it has to be here at the end of 10 years. There's no guarantee. Yeah. I tell my students, let's roll the dice and see. And yeah. I, would, I would advise every single student that I have met with to work towards public service loan forgiveness with the understanding that they may not go into a field that's in uh, that is a 501c3 not-for-profit entity okay. or the federal government may change the policy and and they may no longer be eligible for public service loan forgiveness or yeah. the program could go away altogether and, and this is all policy right subject to change based on who's our, our president or what our, our nation's leaders decide, correct? Correct. We're right in the middle of reauthorization through fe the federal government for financial aid, and we just don't know what's going to happen. None of us have a crystal ball and can tell us can tell what's going to be available in 10 years. Yeah. But it makes no sense at all not to work towards this. That, that, that's, that, that's exactly what I try to tell people. Is if it works out, it's a grand slam. Absolutely. What a bonus. Yeah. And so shoot for it, you know, until you decide I'm working for a private practice or a, an employer doesn't qualify or I'm going a different route. Correct. And then we look at other options at that point. Right. But uh, if you do qualify for public service and you do have 250 or $300,000 of your student loans forgiven, that is completely tax-free. You yeah. do not have to pay taxes on anything that's forgiven through public service loan forgiveness. Now, one of the reasons, sorry, Chad, one of the it, reasons yeah. why it is um, interesting to look at what's going on right now is this program has been around, and if you had made 120 payments, if you've been making full on-time payments and your loans were all direct loans, again, your loans must be direct, yeah. um, and you applied and qualified for public service, the earliest that could have happened was October of 2017. Yes. So we're only two years into option, into the availability of people having their loans forgiven. And yes, the outcome hasn't been very good. And people are very frustrated with the program, but the federal government is doing everything in their part to make it work. And there's actually an additional program out there to help those that have 
thought that they were in repayment through public service loan forgiveness and should have had their loans forgiven. So it's very important to go out and check online to see if you qualify for the other program if you happen to have fallen in that category. Yeah, that, that's a, a popular one. People applied and they were in the wrong repayment method or loan structure. So Correct. No, it's, it's good to hear there's tools out there for people to turn to. Um, you know, a lot of people say I'm, I'm just generally skeptical that but the balance will be forgiven, policy could change, what should I do? And a, and a popular option is you know, make the income-based repayments and extra money that you have that you can save, save on the side. And that way if, you know, if, if the program doesn't pan out and all the balance isn't forgiven or you know, only a portion of it, you, you've been saving money on the side that you can lump towards your student loans. And so you're not getting to the end of the road saying, oh, I didn't save any extra money and my loans weren't forgiven. So th th there's ways that we'd be happy to talk through with our with you know physician physicians and our clients to to hedge against the possibility of the program not panning out if you're skeptical. And I tell all of my students that as well. And one of the things that I like to say is, if public service loan forgiveness is available and you do qualify, you've got a really good nest egg going forward for your retirement yes, or yes. towards your practice or whatever it is that you want to do with that funding. And if not, reevaluate your student loans. And if you're paying 6% or 7% interest on those student loans, at the point when you know public service loan forgiveness is not an option, look at private consolidation. There are yes. companies out there that would love to purchase your loans. They'll be your best friends. They right? love physicians. <laughs> physicians don't default. Yes, I, I t we, we talk about this all the time. His, physicians have been groomed from day one, right? Oh, absolutely. To make payments. And so statistically, they're ideal candidates Absolutely. for banks. They, they want to be your best friend and they are more than happy to help you refinance your 6% loans down to 4%. Or lower. Or lower. And you know, if you're saying I work for a private group or I know I'm going to take over a family's practice, you know, and you know you're not going to go the public service loan forgiveness route, this is something that you should look into. While you're in residency, it doesn't make any sense not to go into the federal repayment plans that assist. Oh, we have students who actually could because of our population, um, our, class, our classes tend to have married students and several have children. Um, they would actually qualify for a much lower payment through the pay-as-you-earn or the revised pay-as-you-earn pay repayment plan. Why not take advantage of that lower repayment and the interest subsidies that go along with that? Yeah. With the revised pay-as-you-earn, 50% of the, the interest that isn't paid by your payment is forgiven by the federal government. That's a very big plus if you have a low payment and you have a high, you know, the interest that's, that's accruing on your loans is high. Yeah, there absolutely. are a lot of options out there and, and we definitely want to make sure that everyone leaves with the right information. Yeah, you know, turning a blind eye to it saying, um, money's not my thing, I don't like thinking about it. it. You're probably not doing yourself a, you're doing a disservice, right? Absolutely. It's worth the effort and the time to talk about it and make sure you're on the right track. Now, if you're a specific student who knows you're going to go into a very lucrative field and you are not going to make any payments on your loans while you're in residency, if you aggressively pay those loans back right after you get into practice, right after you're in attending and your income has significantly increased, and I do mean aggressively pay those loans back, yeah. you could actually pay less than the standard repayment, pay less interest than the standard repayment, even keeping your loans in forbearance for, for several years. Yeah, Again, it's student by student, it's borrower by borrower. That's why we sit down with each student individually and 
and go over these options before they leave. Oh, that's that's terrific. Well, Wendy, this has been great. You know, I guess as we wrap it up, you've seen the spectrum of people come through your office. Those who are good with money, those who are bad with money, uh, those with large, small balances. D do you have any just general advice that you could give to someone saying, you know, I have student loans, I want to make sure I'm doing it correctly. What's some general advice you'd give to people? I guess rules of thumb. So our medical students may have a cost of attendance well over $70,000 a year. And you can borrow $40,500 in an unsubsidized direct loan. And anything additional you can borrow out of the Graduate PLUS loan. That doesn't mean you need to come in and borrow $70,000 right off the bat. You, if you need that additional funding, you can come back and ask for additional loan funds throughout the school year. So let's say you've borrowed $55,000, you receive half of that funding in the fall semester and the other half in the spring semester. And yeah. comes to November and you realize there's more expenses than you thought you were going to occur. Take the time to come in and meet with your financial aid professional and determine whether or not you need to borrow some additional funding. Taking out an additional loan later in the semester is going to save that much in interest off of that first three months. And why would you have a federal loan sitting in your bank account accruing interest that you're not using? Yeah. Definitely borrow wisely. Make a budget. I can't stress that enough. Yes. You're speaking our language. This is great. Medical school is expensive, and we know that, but it is a good expense, and you are definitely on the right track. Yeah. You know, a lot of people in residency say, I feel anxious, like I should be doing something right now because I know I have a compressed number of earning years. I need to retire one day. What should I be doing now? And one of the key things is the point you made is it's a time to learn how to control a budget. A lot of people have never thought about a budget, and so when their salary goes from zero to sixty thousand, they think this is fantastic, and they spend accordingly. And then it goes from sixty to two hundred thousand, they spend it all, right? Because they've never thought about a budget. So residency is a good time to say we're going to budget, stay on top of our student loans, educate ourselves about it, build a plan for repayment, and really, uh, that those are the the foundation pieces to a good financial plan. Well, you guys definitely assist our students very, very well, and they're very lucky to be able to come and, and interact with your, with your group. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. You know, we're, we're, we'd be happy to meet with anyone and uh, answer student loan questions. And once again, Wendy, thank you for your time. Thanks. Okay.